Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Welcome to, I guess this is part four, the name of this series is Revolutions. Jews and the Great European Revolutions. This is the fourth lecture tonight, um, entitled The Anti-Semitic Reaction of Europe and Its Impact on Jews. And I'm actually going to be picking up where I left off uh, last night, uh, which was in the middle of the third lecture, but we're, you know, we're in a suspenseful moment. I do want to say everybody should give a great hand of applause to Jake Schulman for slipping over here now. Seriously. Appreciate it. And... Uh, with any further ado, uh, let's get into business. When I left you, when I left you off last, like one of those, uh, what do you call it, sequels from the 30s, you know? Cereals. Says, <laughs> yeah, cereals. He said, when I left you off last, Napoleon <laughs> had a, a, a convening, what they call an assembly of notables. This is supposed to be a preparatory for the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is supposed to just ratify. Get it? Meanwhile, he wants to make sure uh, that... Everybody's going to vote the right way. And um, if you recall, the emperor has commissioned... Oh, I'm sorry, can I just... <laughs> I beg your pardon. I do want to mention tonight, he sponsored by Brock Jankowitz. I was the next man in memory of his grandmother, I believe. And now we'll get right into it. Um, Napoleon had uh, asked a bunch of questions. Let's go to the next one. And they gave answers, meaning that these notables uh, were under great pressure, obviously, uh, they never actually met with the emperor. Uh, they're not they're not enough for that. But they did have to issue written responses to the questions. Since 111 Jews got to come together and agree on the Nusa, that's not so easy. And as I mentioned yesterday, you had people from the right to the left. And so some were easier to answer than others. So what did they actually have? There's a book that was published... One year later, in 1808 in England, somebody translated the proceedings, transactions of the Parisian Sanhedrin or the acts of the Assembly of Israelite Deputies of France in Italy. So, uh, is, it permi- is it lawful for Jews to marry one wife? That's the easy one to answer. <laughs> That's easy to answer. It's not lawful for Jews to marry one wife, they wrote. In all European countries, they conform to the general practice of one. Moses does not command expressly to take several, but he doesn't forbid it. So notice it doesn't say in the Bible, thou shalt take more than one wife. On the other hand, it doesn't say you shouldn't. He seems even to adopt that custom as generally prevailing, since he sells inheritance between children of different wives. Remember it says in the Chumash, Lo yuchal ben ho'ahuva al ben hasnuah ki yel nashim. The Chumash does speak of such a So you're a Christian, Napoleon. Yeah, and so no, the Old Testament does have such concepts. Uh, although this practice still prevails in the East, meaning in the Middle East, okay, Yet their ancient doctors have enjoined them to restrain from taking more than one wife, except man is enabled by his fortune to maintain several. Even the Sephardim now, they say, aren't into more than one wife, except in exceptional circumstances. The case is a bit different in the West. The wish of adopting a custom habits as a part of the world has induced the Jews to renounce polygamy. So this is something even before Napoleon came along, they say, that the Jews decided we want to be like the Christians. 
but as several individuals still indulge in this practice, meaning even where Benu Gershom came around, it's not like polygamy was widespread, it was extremely rare. In fact, I've said this many times, I don't think you it is, and this is interesting, and I think I'm right about this, I don't think there's a single rabbi in the Gemara has more than one wife. That's a lot of different people, I believe, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but several individuals still indulge in practice. A synod was convened at Worms, 11th century, composed of 100 rabbis with Gershom, that's Rabbeinu Gershom, assembly pronounced an anathema against every Israelite who should in the future take more than one wife, Cherem and Rabbeinu Gershom. Although this provision was not to last forever, because that's obviously since time I put that in, you know, he's a Talmud Chacham. The Rajma says, uh, there is an opinion. That, listen, we don't actually have any record of this. This is a well-known Jewish tradition. There's no actual physical record or even, believe it or not, a written record of uh, such a synod or a transaction. It just got out there. Uh, so some said that it's only supposed to last until the year 1200. But the influence of European matters has humorously prevailed. In other words, nobody knows that and nobody violates that even though it's past the year 1200. Who takes more than one wife? That's an easy one. Second, is divorce allowed by the Jewish religion? Is it valid? When it's not a civil divorce, when not pronounced by courts of justice, by virtue of laws and contradictions, those of the French code. So can you have a get when the French court hasn't agreed to a divorce? Uh, this will be a big issue in French Jewry for 100 years after this, and maybe even more. And the French rabbis, who are a bunch of losers by the late 1800s, did on a number of occasions because of the pressure of the French government and the desire to conform to, to what they call laïcité, the laic um, rule of law in France, which is very anti-Catholic by the time we get to the late 1800s, early 1900s, they want to assert the absolute power, I repeat, the absolute control of the secular state over the Catholic Church, because it's a big political battle over that. And so uh, in that context, the rabbis in France in the late 1800s won a number of it twice, as I recall, uh, wanted to also issue a rule that uh, there should be no get unless it's first a civil divorce and maybe even uh, believe it or not they wanted to do away with Gerishin, with, with a gitten by putting a tenai in the original marriage which says uh, when you get married if the French courts say you're divorced then retroactively this marriage is annulled um they wanted to do that, which provoked a huge outcry in the rabbinic world. And there's every big rabbi in the world said, what are you doing? And they kind of backed off. And uh, that's a whole story by itself. <laughs> that's for a lecture. But uh, it goes back to here. So what's the story? So what are they answered? They have to be very careful what they say. Repudiation is allowed by the law of Moses, meaning we do have repudiation is gitten. It's French, repudiation. <laughs> right? You know, gayrishin. Uh, is allowed by the law of Moses, because true or not, it's, it talks in the Chumash about it. Again, they're very clever. They tell Napoleon, it's not a Talmudic thing, it's a biblical thing. But it's not valid, it's not previously pronounced by the French Code. That's a lie. Um, but, 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 you know, like I'm doing now, it's, it's a ballet. In the eyes of every Israelite, without exception, without exception, submission to the prince is the first of duties. It's a, what we call Dina de Malchusa Dina. It's just, they're trying to speak in, in nice French. Okay? Uh, it's a principle generally acknowledged among them that in everything relating to civil political interests, the law of the state is supreme law. Before they were admitted to France, 
in France to share the rights of all citizens, meaning before the French Revolution, and when they lived under particular legislation which set them at liberty to follow the religious customs, when we had our own kahilos, the autonomous separate communities, uh, they had the ability to divorce their wives, but it was extremely rare to put in practice. I think we all know this. Divorce wasn't very common long ago. Um, since the Revolution, the Jews have acknowledged no other laws on this head but those of the Empire. At the epoch, they were admitted rank of citizens, the rabbis and principal Jews appeared before municipalities in their respective places and took an oath to conform in everything to the laws and acknowledge no other rules in civil matters. So therefore, ever since the French Revolution, since we took an oath of allegiance to the uh, French uh, government and French laws, so now uh, there's no more gittin unless it's preceded by a civil divorce. Now, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, as I said before, he was a, a, a great scholar. What I just said is not a violation of halacha. Agreed? Do you, do you get that? In other words, if we French Jews all say there's not going to be any get unless it's preceded by a civil divorce, you can hear that. You, know, you don't have to, but if you make that a practice, it's not a violation of the din. It's just like an extra pain in the neck. But it's, it's not a violation of the din. So that's what I'm trying to say. So everybody can say, oh, the law of the princess is supreme. Let's go on. Can a Jewess marry a Christian or vice versa? Or does the law, the Jewish law, allow Jews to marry only among themselves? That's a tricky one. <laughs> How are you going to get out of that? Put on your ballet shoes. The law does not say, the Chumash. The law does not say a Jewess cannot marry a Christian or a Christian woman. That is technically correct. You will find no verse in the Bible that said, Thou shalt not marry a Christian. I'm just trying to show you. You will not find a verse like that. Okay, say so he was a good lawyer. Nor, is it, nor does it state that Jews can only marry among themselves. You will not find a verse in the Bible that says, Thou shalt only marry fellow Jews. There is no such verse in the Bible. Agreed? Um, the only express marriage of Ben Bello is the seven nations. It does talk about the Canaanite and Priesi. Lo sischaten behem. There is a word like that in the Chumash. And Amun and Moab are the Egyptians. The prohibition is absolute about the seven nations. Amun and Moab, it's only, according to many, Zohar, not Nekeva. As we know, today is a week before Shavuos. It is even thought that these last would have embraced the Jewish religion. In other words, the Gemara does talk about a Moavi converting to Judaism, and, you know, he just can't marry a regular Jewish girl, but he can marry a, a, a gay or something. And in other words, it's not an absolute uh, prohibition. As to Egyptians, prohibition is third generation. Adoravi, right? Prohibition in general applies only nations in idolatry, if we're not the French. Right? If you go by what it says in the Bible. <laughs> uh, the Talmud declares formally that modern nations are not to be considered such since they worship God, the God of heaven and earth. Sort of. Sort of. Well, there, there are some statements that say, no, there is a statement in the Gemara, but there's one or two statements that say that the God of are just meaning they worship idolatry and purity, meaning they don't believe it, they just do it by custom. You could finesse that into what you just read. Um... Accordingly, there have been several periods of intermarriage between Jews and Christians in France and Spain and Germany. It is a fact that over a thousand years, there have been Jews and Christian marriage. 
You know what he's leaving out, but I'm just saying, you know, it is a fact that this happened. These marriages were sometimes tolerated, sometimes forbidden by the Lord of Sovereigns, who received Jews into their dominions. In other words, sometimes the Gentile were permitted, sometimes the Gentile didn't permit it. Okay? Let's go. Unions of this kind are still found in France. There are some Jews married to Christians in France. We cannot deny the opinion of rabbis against these marriages. According to their doctrine, although the religion of Moses is not forbidden the Jews to enter the nation out of the religion, yet his marriages, according to the Talmud, requires religious ceremonies called Kiddushin, with the benediction, meaning a bracha used in such cases, no marriage can be religiously valid unless these ceremonies have been performed. So, the Jewish religion is not opposed to intermarriage, it just can't, doesn't have a ceremony for it. Okay? This could not be done towards people who would both have not considered these ceremonies as sacred. Because how can you have Kedushin, let's put it this way, this is before Clinton's daughter, you know what I mean? So he says, how can you have Kedushin if both parties aren't Jewish, then the ceremony doesn't have religious meaning for both parties. And the Jews wouldn't want to have a ceremony whose sanctity is not acknowledged by both parties. That would not be nice, right? Like that. Uh, and, if, and in that the married couple can, could separate without the religious divorce, they would consider marriage civilly but not religiously. That's interesting. So if you only got married in a civil thing, then you wouldn't need to get. There's, there's such an opinion. Such an opinion, rabbis member this assembly. Meaning him. <laughs> the others are uh, losers. Now, in general, they would be no more inclined to bless the union of Jews or the Christian or Jew, Christian or Jew more than a Catholic priest would be disposed to sanction unions of his kind. <laughs> Catholics don't do it. By the way, that's not exactly true. Right? But I don't know if they knew that or not. The Catholics will do it provided you agree that children should be raised Catholic. Okay. All right. Anyway, the rabbis acknowledge that a Jew marries a Christian woman doesn't cease to be considered a Jew by his brother any more than if a Jew is, if he married, you know, but a civil marriage is not religiously. So we don't say a person is not Jewish, we don't excommunicate them for marrying outside the faith, we just can't perform the ceremony because it doesn't have the sanctity we got by other parties. Let's go. Fourth question, this one's easy. In the eyes of Jews, are Frenchmen their brothers or are they considered strangers? They're strangers. And the eyes of Jews, Frenchmen, their brethren, not strangers. The true spirit of law of Moses is constant with this mode of considering Frenchmen. In other words, we mean it. Okay? Uh, when the Israelites formed and settled an independent nation, that's it, right? Their law made a rule to consider strangers brethren. It says in the Chumash, uh, respect the gear among you. But no, no, no. That's not what it says. It said, respect the stranger among you. Okay? So, uh, even when we had our own country, we, we love Frenchmen. <laughs> when the most tender care for their welfare, the lawgiver commands them, love therefore the strangers. Vahaftim is a gear. He said, Israel, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Respecting but elements towards strangers are enforced by Moses, not as an exhortation and practice of social morality only, but as an obligation by God himself. A religion whose fundamental maxims are such, religion which makes a duty of loving the stranger, which enforces the practice of social virtues, must surely require that they consider them their fellow citizens as brethren. 
And how could they consider them otherwise when they have the same land, same rule by the same government, same laws, when they enjoy the same rights and the same duties fulfilled? There exists even between the Jew and the Christian a tie which abundantly compensates religion, the tie of gratitude. The sentiment was excited us by the mere grant of toleration. In other words, even if, even if the, it was not the case, which it is, the fact that the French have given us now citizenship must excite a basic hakar satov, right? How can we not regard French as our brothers? Um, what does he see over here? The it has been increased these 18 years by new favors from the government's degree of energy that now our fate is irrevocably linked with the common fate of all friendship. France is our country, all French are brothers, and this glorious title, meaning Frenchmen, raising to our own esteem, comes a sure pledge that we will never cease to be worthy of it. No, they shoot the bull. All right, let's go. <laughs> Number five. In either case, what line of conduct does law prescribe to the Frenchmen not of their religion? Stab him at the back. I mean, what are you supposed to say? This line of conduct preserved French and not of religion is the same as that between Jews themselves. This is true. You can't rob them. You can't steal from them. You can't hurt them. This, 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 you know, that, that part is true. Agreed? And so many laws can't count for a minion, but, you know, the, the, seriously, the basic laws of morality apply to everybody. Jewish religion does not preach, go hurt somebody who's not a member of your religion. Seriously, right? Uh, we admit of no difference in worship except that of worshiping God, each one his own way. The answer to the preceding question has explained conduct law toward Frenchmen, not of our religion, meaning we consider them our brothers. Present times, Jews are no longer a separate people, have the advantage of being incorporated within the great nation, whose privilege they consider a kind of political redemption. That's a little line, get heavy. This is the Geula Shlem over here, you know. Uh, it's impossible that a Jew should treat a Frenchman in any other manner they would treat one of his Israeli brothers. I could talk about that, but I won't. Number six. Do Jews born in France and treated French citizens consider France their country? Are they bound to defend it? Are they bound to obey the laws conforming to the of the civil code? No, you want to get drafted? Is that okay? Men who adopt their country and reside in many generations, even in restraint of laws, bridge their civil rights, meaning before the revolution, were so attached, they preferred being debarred from an advantage common to all other citizens rather than leave it. Our ancestors have lived in Alsace for a thousand years and more. And that's when we were persecuted. So if they love this land so much that they would stay even though they're persecuted, Kalvachomer, now that they're giving civil rights. That's what they're saying. Cannot but consider, cannot but consider Frenchmen in France. It's an equally sacred and honorable the duty of defending their country. Jeremiah exhorts them to consider Babylon their country, although they remain for 70 years. Till the ground, Jeremiah says, build it. That's a famous puzzle. And Ezra said when Cyrus allowed to return, 42,000 left, most of them were poor people, the wealthy, having remained in that city. Interesting. We consider that a little bit of a tricky business. <clears throat> when the Jews were exiled, from, I'll tell you what it means. When the Jews were kicked out of Israel and the first base on Migdish was destroyed in Tisha B'Av the first time, so they went to what they called Golis Bavel. This is true. And, and they were there for 70 years. And what happened after 70 or 80 years, whatever it was, around, it's complicated, but around that time. What happened when they were finally given permission to leave? They didn't leave. Okay. This is considered a famous sin by the Talmud. But the fact is, they didn't leave. What does that mean? They were get treated well in Babylonia, and therefore they liked it and they didn't leave. So what he's saying over here to Napoleon is, if the Mashiach came tomorrow, the French Jews would stay here. The poor maybe would leave, like happened over there. Who left? To, this is what they're saying. Who left to go back to Israel and suffer the hardships of the journey and rebuild the temple and, 
that have to be Indian fighters, you know, with the, with the, with the uh, Samaritans and all that stuff, they read about the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. Very few. 42,000 after, probably out of a million or something like that. Uh, so what does that show you? The Jews have a long, long history of thousands of years of becoming so attached to the country that they stay in that they're absolutely patriotic, even to the preference of their own country. Tricky. Interesting. Disturbing. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's what you call a good chap. Okay? Uh, it's interesting. The love of country is the heart of Jews is a sense of so natural, powerful, and consonant that a French Jew considers himself in England as among strangers, even these among Jews, and the same is true with English Jews in France. I hope that's not the case, but maybe it was by this time. You understand? I hope that's not the case. What he's really basically saying is like this. I feel more in common with a Frenchman who's a Christian than I do with an Englishman who's a Jew. So do you, do you feel more uh, in common with a Jew from another country than a non-Jew from this country? That's a tricky question. Um, to such a pitched sentiment carried among them that during the latest war, French Jews were fighting desperately against other Jews, subject country war with France, many covered honorable wounds, same field of honor, no rewards of bravery. You know, you, Napoleon Bonaparte, had soldiers, some, in your army who were Jewish. And they were fighting against other armies which had Jews in them. And this is new, relatively new. And consequently, what does that tell you? We're patriots. Right? We didn't say, oh, I'm not going to shoot because he's a, a Jew. Right? I said, I'm a Frenchman. Now, a from Jew wouldn't say that. Now, who was it? Josh Gutman, I think, told me his father was in the First World War. I think I remember this right. Yeah. His father in the First World War on the Western Front. And, he, you know, he's in the German army, and there's a French army with the trenches. And he heard them talking, uh, making a bracha or something on the other side. So he shot up in the air. Okay? Different sentiment. Different sentiment. But he wasn't talking to Napoleon. Okay, let's go. Who names the rabbis? Now Napoleon's getting down to Tachlis. Okay? Since the revolution, the majority of chiefs of the families names the rabbis meaning the majority vote of the Chashua people. Wherever there is a sufficient number of Jews to maintain one, meaning if they have a million, after previous inquiries as to the morality and learning of the candidates. That is true. This mode of election is not uniform, varies according to place and place, and whatever concerns the uh, election of the rabbi is still in the state of uncertainty because the French have destroyed the autonomous communities. So we're in a flux now. We know the old system, but, but we don't, we're in the process of creating a new system. That's a perfectly fair answer. Next. What police jurisdiction do rabbis exercise among the Jews? That means, I guess, what's the coercion? Can they kill you if you don't keep Shabbos? Can they beat you up? Can they hit you with a money fine? What can they do? What judicial power do you among them? The rabbis exercise no manner of police among, among the Jews. Meaning now, in 1808, 1807. It is only in the Mishnah and Talmud where rabbis found for the first time applied to a doctor in the law, meaning a scholar, as we would call it. And he was commonly indebted for qualifications, reputation, and to the pain general attained of his learning. Which means that it's not really a theocracy in the sense <coughs> the rabbi's not a clergyman. I think we know this. In America, they tried to turn him into a clergyman. But uh, in traditional Judaism, rabbi's just somebody who has knowledge of the law, of the Talmud. If you know a little Gemara, you're a little rabbi. If you know a lot of Gemara, you're a big rabbi, like that. And consequently, it's not like, so, as opposed to the Catholic Church, where the priest is a sanctified, sacralized clergyman, has a special standing. I don't need to tell anybody over here, you can get married, buried, divorced, oh, you don't need a rabbi. Right? You just have to conform to the rules. The only reason we bring a rabbi along, usually, is to make sure that they follow the rules, but you don't need to. 
So uh, that's what he's trying to get across to him. When the Israelites were dispersed, meaning when they were in the Gullus, they formed small communities in this place that allowed in certain numbers. Sometimes a rabbi and two doctors formed a kind of based in house of justice. Rabbi filled the role of a judge, and those were his assessors. It just developed that way. It doesn't say in the Bible, when thou goest to a land, set up a rabbi and two dayanim, and thou shalt make a basin. I mean, it doesn't say those words. The attributes even exist in these tribes have this, they always depend on the will of the government, which the Jews have lived, and to give talents to enjoy. True. We've talked, I certainly have, many, many times. That is the meaning of the autonomous courts community. That wherever the Jews lived, they got permission from the government, more or less autonomy granted by the government, to exercise these kind of functions. It was never against the will of the ruler. It had to be always with the will of the ruler. Maybe they purchased it, whatever, but in other words, always, so we never went against the government. Um, since the revolution, the biblical tribunals are totally suppressed in France. The French government has, has eliminated the basins. And then in Italy, the Jews raised the rank of citizens conformed to everything laws of the state and accordingly functioned the rabbi ever established are limited to preaching morality, blessing marriages, and pronouncing divorces. We don't have any kosher mishpat powers anymore. And that is absolutely true. Just like the United States, the rabbis don't have any kosher mishpat powers. If people voluntarily want to do binding arbitration, that's your business. But, you know, you don't have any right or power to do that. Ninth. Are these forms of election that, and that of police uh, re- jurisdiction regulated by law or custom? The answer preceding question makes it useless. So we already discussed it. But even supposing rabbis should have to this day some kind of you know, uh, coercive power among us, which is not the case, neither such jurisdiction or form of election can be sanctioned by the law. They're only attributed to custom. In other words, the Gemara does not lay out clearly, and certainly Bible, when you go to Baltimore, this is how you should form your community. Right? It developed. This is true. Over the years, the Kehillah system evolved. So they're not wrong about that. Tenth question. Are there professionals which, are there professions which a lot of Jews forbidden from exercising? Maybe a Jew can't be a soldier. Something like that, right? No. You can be anything. The Talmud says, the father doesn't teach a profession of a child, rears him up to be a villain. That's got nothing to do with the question, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's okay with me. Uh, we're nearing the end. Does the law forbid the Jews from taking ribbits, usually from the brethren. It says in Deuteronomy, the saying of the brother, interest of money, into victuals, and into anything lent upon interest. Neshech has been properly translated as usury. In the Hebrew language, it means interest of any kind. Notice, not only when you hit him with a high penalty, even if I give you a dollar, you give me back a dollar and a penny, it's, it's ribbits. It cannot be taken in the medium of usury, because they knew Napoleon was freaked out over the usury. Okay? To a Christian, usury, which means high interest. Is, is the essence of the Jew. And I say, the Bible doesn't talk about that. Does it forbid taking usury from non-Jews? <laughs> That's tricky. As we've seen, in the answer to the foregoing question, the prohibition of usury, which is even the smallest interest, was the maximum of charity and benevolence rather than commercial regulation. It's what he's trying to say like this. It's in the Torah as a moral law. Agree? Torah doesn't have it under laws of commerce. It's, it says, you shouldn't take... Let me be very clear about this. What does it say in the Chumash? It says, don't... Wait a second. Don't cause your brother to bite you. You hear what I said? Don't cause your brother to bite you. What that means is the following. Who is it that offers to pay interest? The borrower. Right? The, the way the world is, 
I need some money, and I'm going to you, and you don't want to lend me money. I say, I'll give you interest. Right? So, and by the way, in a typical situation, if I don't charge a lot of interest, you're very happy. You need $10,000. I say, I'll do it, you know, and, and pay me uh, 3%. Or something like that. It's not a lot. So the guy said, great, I'm really glad, you know, you're doing me a favor. In spite of that, the Torah can't do it. So it's not a commercial regulation. You, you get what I'm saying? Not a commercial regulation, a moral regulation. Uh, in this point of view, it's equally condemned by the law of Moses and by the Talmud. We are generally forbidden the score of charity to lend upon interest to our fellow citizens of different persuasions, fellow Jews. It's a machlokis, whether you can do it for non-Jews. The disposition of law which allows to take interest for the stranger refers only to nations in commercial intercourse with us. That's drawing a fine line, what we call heteriska type situation. Meaning, not you're a money lender exactly, but you're a money lender in the sense of it's a business, okay? Um, it's a fine line. Otherwise, there'd be contradiction in these passages and 20 other sacred writings. Uh, and we wouldn't do that. Do you have a next page? Thus, the prohibition extends strangely dwelt in Israel. Uh, the Holy Rip placed him on the safeguard of God, a sacred guest, and God resorted to when an orphan can. Moses be considered lawgiver because he's lawgiver of the Jews. You Christians regard Moses as a great lawgiver. So he said, Esanochri tigos, tigos. The stranger, yes, the brother, no. Were the laws he gave to the people, which God trusts as care, likely to become the general law of mankind? No. When God gave the laws to Moses, he was talking to the Jews. Thou shalt not lend interest to thy brother. What security had he that the intercourse would be naturally established Jews in foreign nations, that these would renounce customs, generally prevailing in trade, and lend to the Jews without requiring any interest? So now he's going like this. He says, what, what does the Chumash mean? He says, you, can, you, you, can, you can't charge interest to your brother, but to a stranger you can charge interest. He means the following. A stranger is somebody from another country. There's no way for me to know whether they'll ever pay me back. Or things like that. Or how honest he is. So there, I can't go and operate on extreme charity basis because I could get ripped off. So therefore... For someone who, in other words, my point is like this, as opposed to Frenchman. You see, where, you see where I'm going. He says, therefore, when you're dealing with somebody like that, so it's okay, uh, because Moses was practical. Um, what security in the intercourse of being establishing Jews in foreign nations, those who would renounce customs and trade and lend the Jews requiring an interest? Would he sacrifice him and impoverish the people in rich foreign nations? Is it not absurd to re reproach him with having put a restriction on the precept of Deuteronomy? What lawgiver could have considered such a Restriction and natural principle of reciprocity. So a Jew is dealing with a Greek or a Roman. They charge interest. So I can't. So how do I do business? Like that. See what I'm going? See, the Christian church, the Catholic church, forbade usury. And Napoleon would know that. So among Christians, it's like a big no-no. Even though they violate also. But non-Christians... Uh, you know, like I say, your classic Greek, Roman, Babylonian, barbarian, Persian, all the other. They had interest. What's Moses going to say? Don't ever charge anybody any interest. So they can charge you, you can't charge them. It's impossible. That would be ridiculous. How far superior simplicity is the law of Moses to those of the Greeks and Romans? Can we find in history is like scandalous scenes of rebellion, excited by the harshness of credits towards their debtors, frequent abolitions of debt, prevent multitude, impoverished by the exhaustion of lenders, being driven to despair? You, Napoleon, know your classics. He knew them very well. And in Rome, there were all the time 
uh, riots and uh, things of people who were getting ripped off by the Shylocks, uh, Gentile Shylocks. You understand? Uh, the Roman government every once in a while had to try to intervene on this. I don't remember Greece so much, but there are many efforts. We don't have this in the Bible. You don't have it in the Talmud. You see, the Jews never exercised that kind of harsh regime. I don't know if it's true or not, but that's what he says. How far uh, the law of Moses have distinguished the praiseworthy humanity of different uses of borrowed money? Is it to maintain a family? Interest is forbidden. Is it um, to take commercial speculation principles of venture into the ladder between Jews? That's a heteriska. It's investment. I mean, investment is a risk. That you, that's the basis of heteriska, right? That's the basis. Lend to the poor, says Moses. There is a mitzvah like that, totally separate. Here, the tribute of gratitude is the only interest allowed. Lodging sole replicants of the conferred benefit. Just say, I'm giving you a mitzvah and you're saying thank you. But it's different than capital involved in business. Here, Moses allows the lender to a share of the profits as commerce scarcely known Israelites who were addicted to agricultural pursuits as carrying with strangers and was allowed to share his profit with them. So that whole long, complex paragraph was to justify that you can have interest under certain conditions. It's not the world, according to the Talmud, interest among Israelites is lawful in commercial operations, that's what you and I call heterisk, as I said. The lender running some of the risk of the bar becomes sharing his profits. Uh, I wonder if Napoleon followed all this. Uh, this is the opinion of all Jewish doctors, meaning of the Talmud. Example, opinion deeming with, it is evident that opinions teeming with absurdities and contrary to rules of morality, advance the rabbi can be impeded general doctrine of law, then similar notions, if advanced by Catholic theologians, could be attributed to evangelical doctrine. Same can be general charge against the Hebrews, that they're naturally inclined to usury. Some are, right? Not as many, but some are. But if there are not some overnights, is it just to accuse 100,000 individuals of this vice? We have our share of Jewish loan sharks. Uh, they're not right. But that's got nothing to do with Judaism any more than the Christian criminals have to do with Christianity. Okay? We'll talk about that. Um, would it not be an injustice to lay the same petition to all Christians because some are, are guilty of usury? No. We're getting here. I, I don't have to go through the whole thing. I think you get the idea. So, and that was the last one, I believe. So, uh, this was an interrogation, and they had to come up with, like I say, dantic answers. And it's actually kind of interesting the way they formulated it. I don't believe there's any audience other than us tonight, who's actually gone through the actual back and forth of the Napoleonic Assembly of Notables, but you have now. Uh, and they had to, as I say, to a certain degree, shoot the bull. What's interesting is, what's interesting is, Moses Mendelssohn was more courageous. Uh, look over here. <laughs> the gentle Mendelssohn so, got on so well with everybody. Look, look what he writes in his book, Jerusalem, just before he died. And you, dear brothers and fellow men who follow the t- teachings of Jesus, Notice, you, fell, you Christians out there, should you find fault with us for doing what the founder of your religion did himself and confirmed by his authority? After all, he kept Shabbos, you know, like that, right? Should you believe, should you believe that you cannot love us and return as brothers and unite with citizens as long as we're outwardly distinguished by the ceremonial law? Notice, if you say civil rights is only dependent, we'll only give it to you, if you drop your laws of Judaism that separate the Jew from the Gentile. Do not eat with you, do not marry you, before I can see the found your religion with neither of them parent. Also, Jesus would not marry a non-Jew. Like that. Right? Uh, if this should be and remain your true conviction, which we cannot suppose of Christian mind, right? 
uh, if civil union, meaning civil rights and the, 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 the citizenship for the Jews in the country, cannot be attained under any condition, then our departing from the laws we still consider binding on us, then we don't want the civil rights. Then we are sincerely sorry to find it necessary to declare we must rather do without civil union. They said Mendelssohn is not from it, but they don't know. Okay? So, Mendelssohn was speaking to an enlightened republic of letters. You know, he was writing to enlightened individuals and so forth. And uh, <laughs> saying, you know, you can, you can speak in these terms. Napoleon was a different guy. So they couldn't come out and, and, and talk that way. Right? The French Jews were not prepared in 1807 in Italy and France and all those places to say like this, like, the, like a Hasidic rabbi, I guess. If that's what it means, I don't want to be friends. <laughs> you can't do it. You cannot do it. Okay? Um, you're asking me, did they mean it? Did they not mean it? Let's go to the next one. Uh, here, the Hassam Sofer uh, had a hespid for uh, David Zinsheim, died in 1812. And uh, means, means he was a godolador. Because some of it, as many of you know, lived in Pressburg, which is far away. And he says over there, I knew him from a kid. They were speaking of such a person. He was close to the government. And he asked him all kinds of questions. And he had to give answers. To the questioners. And he obviously had great prestige if he was the president, which he was, of the Sanhedrin. And they gave him a big funeral and all this stuff. We'll see about that. That was a, a, a double-edged sword. He did not let his prestige among the French damage his, we'd say, Yiddish guy. In other words, the, the, his, his Torah personality. You read his Sefer, you see the guy knew everything. I remember when I was a kid in Germany, and recently, I've, over these years, I've kept in correspondence with him. I see what a Sadiq Tomimi was. So he never was stuck with, with his Napoleon junk. Get it? You know, what could he do? Um, in other words, he's quite a guy. In, a difference, in addition to being a, a master through his wisdom of French and diplomacy and uh, European uh, culture and manners, he also was a Moshel below Moshel Bahembo. He made sure that he was the ruler, not they rule over him. Meaning he didn't, he didn't sell out his birthright. He had to dance, <laughs> right? But he never said, you know, and let me tell you something, many of the other guys on the panel, especially these Balabakim, uh, they say, okay, you know, we're, we're permitting intermatch, we're permitting this and that, the other, which is what the reform movement has already done, basically. Uh he never allowed himself to be persuaded or seduced to follow the French. Tefach, Tefach, Chaz 
But he was tricky. He revealed an inch and he hid two inches. Right? Which is what I just showed you. Everybody's telling us, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible a Jew cannot marry a Christian. You're Megala Tefach and Mechaza Tefachayim, as it were. But Satan Musa bin Komomi and his Tamimis did not leave him. For Rachel the number, Pug. And, you know, that's the expression, meaning. So, basically, he was, a, you know, sometimes Yaakov has to bow down to Esav. But just don't let it get to your head. Right? Don't let it get to your head. You do what you got to do, but, uh, you know, make the best of a bad situation, as he's putting it over. It's very interesting. It's not Pushit. Let's go to the next one. This is him when he died, I mean, uh, when he was older. Uh, after the Sanhedrin was over, and they set up what they call the consistory system, since he was the <laughs> biggest rabbi, and the richest, he became chief rabbi of France. It's a high position under Napoleon. He died in 1812, they buried him in a Geisha cemetery. And there he is today. They won't let him out. Uh, in Père Lachaise, which is the big cemetery in Paris, uh, among famous notables, he's buried in the section of famous Napoleonic guy. It is Marshal uh, Bern- you know, Messina, and General Juno, and this, and here's and here's the chief rabbi. And the reason I noticed is because I just happened to look this up for the other day for this uh, speech. And so there's a Hasidic website of some kind or another, you know, we chat group things. And it's a Hasidic guy saying like this, Rabbi Shalom, isn't there somebody out there who has some pull with the French authorities? You know, we tried, and the city won't let it go, and the government won't let it go, and you can't do nothing, won't let you move it, and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, who will... Who will liberate this guy from Gullus. For 200 years, he's, he can't be the same. But you know what? If you've been following what I'm talking about the other day, uh, you know, from the French point of view, it's a cemetery. You know, what's the difference? You, know, you believe all this junk? Well, it's a Jewish cemetery. What, are you racially uh, different? So even in his death, he had to pay the price. Right? So this is there today. You know, you can see the Jews put up a little monument, but that's it. Uh, Napoleon, realizing that these answers are the best he's going to get out of people like Rabbi Sinsheim, and he needs them, approves, and then he summons the Sanhedrin of Jewish leaders, lay in rabbinic, to ratify it, so it'll become the halacha. Or as Napoleon would understand it, the official doctrine of the Jewish church. So basically, they have a big public session, there's Sinsheim, as you can see with his hat, and here are all the officials, and they are now the official Sanhedrin of the Jewish people, and they will issue his law. They can get rid of Stam Yenom, they can get rid of Shabbos, they can do whatever, they, you know, whatever is there. That's how he understands it. Napoleon wants to nail it down and hold the Jews to it. He aims to be the most significant figure in modern Jewish history, the founder of the new council of Nicaea. Remember Constantine, the Roman emperor, said, I'm going to get the Christian church to get their act together and their doctrine the way I want it. And so he got all the bishops together in the year 320, 325, whatever, and, you know, that's the way, he, for example, that's when he switched from Saturday to Sunday. He said, I don't like Saturday. Let's make a Sunday. Okay, it's Sunday, you know, like that. So Napoleon's going to be the modern Constantine, and St. Henry's going to be the new council of Nicaea. Um, by the way, you think I'm kidding. Hey, look, he made this painting. <laughs> what is He's God. There the rabbis bowing down to him. The Jews are grateful because he's giving them a new constitution. Uh, let's put it this way. Megalomaniac was not an unknown word in the Napoleonic consciousness. Uh, I'm, I'm serious, like, look at this, okay? It's a Mashiach. It's a Mashiach. Um, and Napoleon even said to his uh, deputies, Count Molay, you know, I could kick the Jews out of the country, but simply to expel the Jews 
would be an expression of the weakness of the state. I'm going to show you we can transform them. That's the way to do it. Right? When the Spanish kicked the Jews out, I mean, Spain was saying, we can't do nothing. We're, we're whips. I'm not a wimp. This is France. We're doing it, baby. And I mean the from ones, too. I'm going to get the rabbi on there. Like the guy said, he's going to cut the ribbon at the opening of the church. We're going to do it. Um, okay. But it didn't work, of course. Why didn't it work? Napoleon had them issue invitations all over the Jewish world. Nobody came. Nobody outside of France, anyway. Outside of the French Empire. Would you the Sanhedrin? Uh, come on. Do you really think <laughs> the Lubavitcher Rebbe is going to go to Paris and join the Napoleon show? He was still alive at that time. You think the Kassam Sober people like that are going to go and agree to be puppets and marionettes in the Napoleon business? Right? No, he obviously was clueless about all this. The Sanhedrin... When it gets together, it's only people that live under Napoleon's rule, of course. And they spend a lot of their time uh, fawningly praising the emperor. They write these poems. I kid you not, they march around like Simcha's Torah on Napoleon's birthday with the Sefer Torahs. Uh, they wrote Piyutim to him. It's disgusting. Of course, t- to be perfectly honest, we shouldn't judge them, but we're judging them anyway because they didn't have to go that far. You know, he, no, since I went into that, but these other guys... They want to bend over like a pretzel to show we're patriotic, 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 you know. And uh, it really was outrageous. But that's not how Napoleon saw it, you know. He was already, like I said before, more, more, you know. Um, That's why, uh, this is the reason why the Lubavitcher Rebbe declared war on Napoleon. I think everybody knows what I'm talking about. When Napoleon invaded Russia, some Rebbe said they should back Napoleon. And the Lubavitcher said, no, he's the worst, right? You should back the Tsar of Russia. And he hated Napoleon. What do you have against Napoleon? What did Napoleon ever do to him? This. This whole business. You see, in the Middle Ages, nobody did this. They say like this, I hate the Jewish religion, I think it's disgusting, but I respect the Jewish religion in terms of it is what it is. Now he's trying to undermine it and get the Jews to be toadies to him. So that's something you didn't even have in the Middle Ages. It's interesting, right? The Pope never tried to do anything like this. You can persecute somebody. That's different, but I don't tell you to be what you're not. This, my friends, is why in the state of Israel, the from people have always been opposed on Hedron. Napoleon made it poison. When Ben-Gurion became prime minister in 48, many people remember Rabbi Maimon, who was the founder of the Mizrahi party, the religious Zionist party. For, I'm sure for the best of reasons, I don't uh, suspect him bad, Rabbi Maimon wanted to make a Sanhedrin. He said, now we have Medina, Yisrael. You know, he said, hallow with a bracha, and with Shachian, the whole everything. So... I mean, he's a real believer. So he said, now we come to Ikvis and the Meshichah, which really he believed. And, you know, uh, what's the right word? Uh, and so forth. Let's make a Sanhedrin. And Ben-Gurion, there's a famous story, Ben-Gurion said, I guess, where are you going to get honest people? You know, it says in the Chumash, Anshichayel Sony Betza. Sony Betza means people hate money. Where are you going to find people who hate money? Right, my Mizeh, I guess. For geld, you know, for the right amount of money, you can get that too. The, um... But what, what was the Ben-Gurion said, okay, you want to make us an Hedron, make us a Hedron. Oh my goodness, the Chazanish, the Briskarov, and people like that said, oh, this will be the worst thing. We fast, as you heard about Yavor, they said, and so on and so forth. Because the name of Sanhedrin means Napoleon, the Ben-Gurion wants to play Napoleon. I'm not saying that's true, but I'm just telling you, this is an immediate, understandable, needs your reaction. That's true until today. Steinzeltz recently made a Sanhedrin. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, what's that? The from world, quote-unquote, is uh, totally against this idea, and um, it's just very interesting. It's like I say, it's the Will Rogers 
uh, you know, theory of Judaism. I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. I'm not a member of any organized religion. I'm Orthodox Jew. We have no Sanhedrins. Until God is good time, says the Mashiach. And then we'll fight it out. Okay, then we'll fight it out. Till then, I don't want somebody there, because all they want to do is change the laws to suit them and not to suit me. Right? No, the first rule of Sanhedrin is you can't vote for Trump or something like that. You know what I mean? They, they, they want the laws that will work for them. And uh, that's a poisonous idea. It's got to come from within Judaism and not be imposed from the outside. In modern culture, we call that colonialism. Okay? When the enlightened, quote-unquote, outside force wants to bring uh, truth and love and peace and understanding to the benighted, uh, backwards, uh, you know, ruled people. So, anyway, it all starts with Napoleon. What was the reward of the French Jews they got for kissing up to the emperor? What, what do they desire? What do they desire? How about a Kehillah founded by the go- funded by the government, not by the Jews? That'd be a nice one. The Catholic Church, you don't have to do nothing. The government pays all the money. Let me put it to you this way. What if T.A. Beisiago, Bethlehem, and all that was free? <laughs> right? What if the shuls were free? Paid for by the government. What if the rabbi's salary is free? The rabbi gets a salary from the government. All of a sudden, everybody says, long live Napoleon. <laughs> you, know, right? you, you, you hear the idea. This is, this is what they want. Um, I'll tell you right now. They'll get the control. They won't get the money. They get the bad, not the good. Um, why can't we be like other uh, denominations? This is the dream of the Jews. A kehillah paid for by the government, meaning not paid for by me. On the other hand, as we all know, getting in bed with the government means conforming what the government wants, even in a matter of internal religious affairs. I just took me a second to Google and the thing on uh, the internet, not even a minute, because uh, I remember in England they're having all these kind of troubles. In England you have non-separation church and state, so the British government does pay a certain percentage of the tuition, right? They do, and therefore they make the rules. And ultra-Orthodox Jews say, you shouldn't teach lies that the earth is older than 6,000 years. And so, in other words, the government wants to say you have to teach the earth is a million years old. And these are Hasidic schools. They say, we don't believe the earth is a million years old. Now, you can curse them out and this and that and the other. Uh, I get that. But does the government have the right to say you're not allowed to do this? What if they come out and say you have to embrace homosexuality, for example? Or what if they say you have to come out and embrace mixed marriages, for example? Or what if they come out and say... They have to, uh, I don't know, you know, with, with any idea that is opposed by um, uh, Orthodox Judaism, uh, even though it's not in conformity with current political correctness. So, is the state entitled? This is a tricky question I'm asking. It's not a simple answer. It's not a simple answer. We're not used to this in the United States of America. I'm talking about, in, but in, France, in European countries, you have this. If you get the money, then they have, they, then they, they have a control. You understand? So uh, this is true of Jews, it's true of Muslims, it's true of, the, of, of, of every denomination, of the Mormon schools and all the rest of it. Uh, if you are under government control, they can make you say it. Now, it's a tricky business. What if they tell you it's a mitzvah to do jihad and blow up the next door building? Then all of a sudden we say, well, that's the government should control. <laughs> you see? What if they tell you that uh, circumcision is a barbaric ritual and should be absolutely banned? How does that work? No, where do you draw the line? I think we all agree that the government should be able to say you can't blow up a building. I think we all agree that the government should not be able to say you can't eat kala. But it's a big area in between. <laughs> where do you draw the line? Well, here's where Napoleon draws the line. <laughs> all the way. Um, so, 
in France, they now set up what they call a consistory system. That's the Protestant denominations have an organization, like Reform and Conservative do today, in a denominational form with a, with a pyramid structure, complete with this French institution called Commissaire Surveillant, which means one of the uh, jobs of the local consistory in Baltimore and New York, if there was Jews in Havre Grace, it'd be in Havre Grace, in Washington, in Charleston, in Atlanta, the job is to regulate the affairs of the Jewish community, and there's a surveying commissioner, Commissaire Surveillant, whose job is to make sure there are no private minions, unauthorized shoals. Get every shoal has to be registered with the government and only and with the, com- the commissary. It's all about control from top down. Because this is Europe. This is the police state. I don't mean like Hitler. It's the police state. The government regulates everything. Um, now for the first, by the way, the Jews don't mind it. The rich Jews, because then they get control of the poor Jews. Now for the first time, a split occurs between the community leaders and the rabbis in France, the Parnassim and the Rabbonim. The lay leaders really want to assimilate. Just get over it. They may not necessarily have thought it through. That's why none of their children are Jewish today. But this is what they want to do. In France itself, all, certainly for the next 60 years, and after it's complicated, the rabbis are going to be totally opposed to this until the 1870s or so. And so you have these big fights, and who's got the power? The lay people. And so they will shove it down the throats little by little. There will be a kind of Reformed Judaism will emerge in France in the 19th century. Not like Reformed Judaism in Germany. It's officially an Orthodox, which is why it could swing back in the 20th century. But it certainly swang this way in the 19th and early 20th century. Because uh, they want to be French. And um, this is how it goes. In Napoleonic Germany, do we have the next one? Look at this. Napoleon conquered a lot of countries, including Germany. A lot of those little states in Germany say like this. Protect us against the big countries like Austria and Prussia when it eats up. The point is, okay, organize yourself in what they call the Confederation of the Rhine. Even though the Rhine is here, but all these little countries, 40 or 50 little kingdoms, are now under protectorates of Napoleon. And uh, they're going to be run, not exactly like the French, but you, often like the French. But he took a whole bunch of lands that had belonged to this and that little prince, and he said, my brother needs a job, and so he made kingdom of Westphalia, just crumbled together. Now he's a king too. This is Jerome Bonaparte. If you're a real Baltimorean, I mean a real, 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 real Baltimorean, which you probably aren't, you'll know who Jerome Bonaparte is. Um, and uh, in the kingdom of Westphalia, they will set up a Napoleonic system, exactly like the French. That's how they organized the kingdom. And that's where Reform Judaism started. Israel Jacobson, who was a court Jew of the king of Westphalia in 1812, found the first Reformed temple in Zizan. That's just, you know, that's that's a fact you learn in reform school, you know what I mean, in, the, in, in Sunday school, um, and so forth. Um, the reason I say his brother, yeah, that, that's him, he's a, he's a court Jew, and he's the one who says, let's change the davening, let's get rid of Sion, let's get rid of this. It all starts with him, okay? Others pick it up later, but, uh, you know, and, he, and being the richest Jew in the country, and Jerome Bonaparte was a playboy, you'll be shocked to hear, and therefore he needed this guy to constantly raise money for him. And therefore, whatever he wants to do, certainly among Jews, just do it. You get it? And that's what goes on from 1807 to 1814 or 1813. You know, that, that, that's how it goes. Let's go to the next one. Jerome Bonaparte. Did I? What's that? Yeah, that's right. Jerome Bonaparte was Napoleon's brother. He ran away during the French Revolution to America. He came to a city called Baltimore. 
and he married the daughter of Paris and Parton. Really? Yeah, William Patterson was the richest uh, Catholic Irish immigrant. The richest in Maryland was John Carroll Carrollton. The second richest was William Patterson. That's called Patterson Park. And uh, he married, without asking his brother, uh, Betsy Patterson. And Napoleon uh, uh, was beyond angry. You know, he was enraged because I want you to marry a princess. That way we could all be kings together. And he said he got a dumper and she came to Europe and Napoleon had her dumped. And uh, she eventually got the state of Maryland to recognize some kind of special divorce status. And uh, she was one of these high society things, you know what I mean? Uh, she married him when she was 17. And he was 19. It's a movie, you know. And she came back and she had the whole family bone apart. Char- her, her grandson was the U.S. Attorney General and the Secretary of Navy. Charles, one, once upon a time, was a, 100 year, 120 years ago, was a very famous Maryland politician. There are bone parts in this city, but you and I are from the Roland Park, Richie Rich, like that. You know, I haven't been there lately, you know. And uh, that, 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 that's it, you know, the, the jockey club and all that kind of business. Um, so, but he got rid of her and married a European princess in Napoleon's orders, and now an official king and queen, and he can marry it over there. Um, and it, I can tell you right now, the first, the beginnings of Reformed Judaism, this is a whole schmooze by itself, but just very briefly, the beginnings of Reformed Judaism have to do in 1810 when there was a kidneys question, because there was a famine. I mean, you know, wartime, there was a shortness of food, and what are you doing, Passover? And can you have the kidneys or not? And I wouldn't say kidneys is the biggest comer that ever came down the road. But on the other hand, it's a well-known Ashkenazi custom. And uh, the, so the court Jew told the Bayesian, you guys find a heter for it. And they did, and you can. And you can, it's, it's known. There's been famous, you know, post-game when the economy required it. And the Senate in Israel, some abundance did it back in the 1950s. Is there such a thing like that? Um... But then he issued his own proclamation. He said, the whole kidney is baloney, so don't, you know, don't even worry about it. Uh, I might point out to you, uh, the most recent Pesach Halacha last year of the conservative movement in the United States was the Mater Kidneys. Uh, they got a 65% intermarriage problem. But, <laughs> they're gonna, but we have taken decisive steps. We have been Mater Kidneys, you know. Um, did Napoleon reward the Jews for the obsequiousness, you know, the fawning and the flattery, we shall see, my friends. The Sanhedrin farce of 1807 constituted the peak of Napoleon's favor towards the Jews. After that, he started moving against them. After that, he started moving against the Jews. This is part of his general slow trend, Napoleon's, towards a certain conservatism, provided that he would become a, a crowned head of Europe. So he's supposed to be the head of a republic, but he dumped Josephine and married the Princess Maria Louise of Habsburg because he wanted to be a king-king and have his children have royal blood. You know, Habsburg, you go, he, he buys the top, <laughs> right? And uh, what's that all about? You understand? What's that all about? He wants to found a dynasty. Emperor's not supposed to have a dynasty if you know the Roman system. But uh, he's going to have one. Uh, Napoleon now wants to get along with the Catholic Church. He had a whole ballet with the Pope. He kind of kidnapped him. He said, come to my uh, coronation. Once he was there, he said, you can't leave. He says, you have the Fountain Blue Palace, so you have nothing to complain about, but you ain't going nowhere. Meanwhile, Napoleon occupied Rome and all this, and the Pope was in an exile, meaning in, 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 in Fountain Blue Palace, until Napoleon was overthrown. So if, if that's because the Pope wouldn't play ball with Napoleon. If he would, Napoleon said, I guess I'll give you all you want. You know, the Catholic Church can become the official religion again, all the rest of it. See, he wasn't so revolutionary at this point anymore. None of this was good to the Jews. Now, Napoleon was not an anti-Semite in the classic sense, the racial sense. Assimilated Jews in Bordeaux didn't bother him at all. 
He had soldiers in the army who were Jewish and he liked them. He was violently anti-Semitic against the Yiddish and the Jewish Jews in Alsace, whom he regarded as Hasidic, repulsive, unassimilated, bloodsucker. He believed the complaints against the Jewish usurers. In 1806, for example, he proclaimed a temporary moratorium on repayments. So that, that bankrupted thousands and thousands of moneylenders. In 1808, he went even farther against the Alsatian Jews and he issued what's called the infamous decree, one year after the Sanhedrin. Look at this. Um, the infamous decree, the third decree, presumed all Jews. Now, Jews here means Jews in Alsace Lorraine. He said, all Jews guilty of chicanery. This is the language of the decree. It uses trickery to achieve political purpose unless proven innocent. You hear that? You're Jewish, you're, you're a, a, a bloodsucker unless you can demonstrate otherwise. And restricted Jewish and commerce money lending for 10 years. Meaning, we're going to uh, put a, a block on Jews' ability to participate in the economy, and in 10 years we'll revisit the measure, maybe we'll kick him out of the country or something. The decree was put into place to end Jewish money lending. It annulled all debts owed to Jews by married women, minors, and soldiers, and voided any loan interest over 10%. This is an attempt by Napoleon to get rid of alleged usury by Jewish businessmen, and to turn the former businessmen and the craftsmen and farmers, most supposedly equality Jews and non-Jews in France. It's so Napoleonic. You're 50 years old. You're a money lender. That's what you've always done. No. Now go out and become a peasant. Start farming. <laughs> right? There's the cow. Get back. All right? To encourage Jews to move in this niche, Jews were restricted in changing residence in certain parts of France unless they acquired rural property, devoted themselves to agriculture, or entering any commercial business transactions. So you want to move somewhere else in France, you've got to buy a farm and, and farm it. Okay? Because the Jews are unproductive. They're bloodsuckers. So the only way you can make them productive is like the kibbutz movement. Is to turn them into... Honest husbandmen working the soil. This was the, the mystique. Because the Jews bought into this. The Zionist movement bought into this. And they said, what's wrong with us is we're business people. You understand? We should all go and work the land. Um, to keep tabs of businesses survived the new restrictions, the decree mandated that all businesses require a patent or license every new yearly. So you're a Jew. You shouldn't be in business. If you do, you have to get a police permit every year. Not only decree hurt the Jews economically, it changed their military rights. Uh, and it said over here, I'll tell you out loud, Napoleon's system, he had a drift, but he didn't want to alienate the middle class any more than Abraham Lincoln did. So you can buy a substitute. That's what she did. Jews can't buy a substitute. Okay? Christians can buy a substitute. Jews cannot buy a substitute. But what's that all about? You want to use the military service to make assimilation and conversion. That's what it's about. Final statement was an attempt to strengthen their bond with the government of the country, made it to a Jewish conscripts, couldn't find a place for themselves when drafted the government allowed to do so. So what happened to the citizenship that all Jews are equal under the law and all the rest of it? What are you going to do? Um, it happened. Okay. In other words, Napoleon came to believe that the came to believe over the course of time that the French Revolution had gone too far in favoring the Jews and discriminately favoring all Jews. It should have only granted a, a, a citizenship to assimilated Jews. Here we see a pattern that was appear and reappear in Europe. The Jews are granted rights, then there's second thoughts, and then the rights there's backtracking. That's what Hitler was. He said, went too far, gave the Jews rights, they should go back to either leave Europe or live in, in some sort of certainly a legal ghetto. And as you know, that was popular. By this time the French Revolution had attained its final development, the Napoleonic Empire. If you know if you're a history teacher in high school, you say yes. 
it was the uh, bourgeois republic, then the reign of terror, then the Thermidor reaction, then the directory, then the consulate, and then the empire. You know, it's like that. This is how it turned into. So in those, the whole French Revolution, which is talking about freedom and all the rest of it, turned into a very pretty military dictatorship. If you want to cut away all the... It was very pretty, so, you know, it didn't look like a dictatorship, but, but that's what it is, okay? Now, because um, he was a talented guy. Um, the office of emperor was supposed to be like Augustus Caesar, who was merely the princeps of the Republic. If you know Rome, and the French loved the Romans, Augustus Caesar, if you notice, chose, after he killed Mark Antony and, and Cleopatra and 100, 200, 500 other people that stood in the way, once he was the only guy left standing, he said, like let's continue with the Republic. I'm a strong believer in republicanism. The Senate can continue as well as before. I'm just going to have a senator. And he would let people debate things like that. And any once in a while, he wanted to. He says, I, and he didn't mind if you contradicted him. You know, he said this. He said, no, I think it's the other way. But if he ever said, I guess, you know, I really think we should do this. Okay. Because <laughs> he commanded the army and the police and all the rest. Of it. You know, we get away. See, he liked the facade of republicanism. But he didn't like the reality of it. That's Napoleon, that's Napoleon supposed to be. You know, that time is ideal. You know? France is a republic, the emperor of the republic, everybody can do whatever they want, unless I really, you know, like that. But really, Napoleon was getting into the royal shtick. Right? The lives of rich and famous. I mean, look at that. That ain't Augustus Caesar. What is it? That's Hollywood. Okay? And these are Jean-Jacques David, you know, his court painter. They're putting a, he, he really got into this uh, head, head and foot, right? Um, I mean, he <laughs> Boy, oh boy. And uh, in other words, Napoleon would be, by the time this has reached its full development, he's going to be the king. He's going to be the king, not like that boob Louis XVI who didn't know how to do it. Napoleon's going to know how to do it. So France have a real king. And I found a dynasty it won't be like the Bourbons who were, you know, the bourgeoisie, as Mencken put it. This will be run like a kingdom, and France likes that. And everybody will be happy. You know, this, 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 this is how it was heading. That's why he married the princess and all the rest of it. Uh, by the way, don't be surprised. This happens in every country. There's only one reason it did not happen in the United States of America. Well, you had the revolution. They want to make a king here. Alexander Hamilton want to make a king. Here's the reason it didn't happen. Because George Washington said no. And he said no a hundred times. He said it's a higher level to be a citizen of the American Republic than to be crowned head. You've got to be Let's put it this way. Napoleon was not in that league. Like, that's the reason. Right? You must have learned this. They offered Washington many times. In fact, the army wanted to make a coup. Do you remember that point? After the after revolution? And put him in charge because the Congress was corrupt. And the Congress was corrupt. Right? And remember, Washington said, no way. Napoleon was not Washington. <laughs> that's the point. Okay. So, was it revolutionary France by the time you get to this? This is weird. He named all his brothers and sisters kings of country. This guy's going to be the king of Naples. This will be the king of Westphalia. I forget who that is. That's supposed to be the king of Holland. This guy was the king. No, this is Westphalia. And this should be Spain. Joseph, I think. So uh, that's what he is. So what's that all about? He wants, why call everybody a king and a queen? King and a queen. Right? So uh, it's not a republic exactly. It's weird. It's officially a republic, but it ain't a republic. <coughs> The French public out there, they were just glad. Here, let's show this uh, next thing. They were glad we're not back to the old days of the French Revolution. What they liked about Napoleon, even though they had too many wars, was this law and order. You could walk in the street. Got it? 
They hadn't forgot. I guess it's not by sharing, right? No, Try. I tried to show it yesterday. Okay. I was going to show the scene from the September massacres of 1792, which is pretty gruesome. And people, it was only 12 years later. It was only 15 years later. Right? I guess I'm it. And people, and you know, chopping heads off, marching through the streets with uh, chopped up bodies, all the rest of it. No, they said, I guess, Napoleon's great. Right? It's, it's a normal country. It's too many wars, but it's a normal country. I can go from Paris to, to Marseille. I can do, you know, do business, all the rest of it. If you're not a soldier, it's, it's, it's fine. The, 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 the taxes are efficient, all the rest of it. Uh, so the people were grateful that he got rid of the horrors as they saw it, the excesses of the French Revolution. And he, they, but he kept the, the good stuff as they saw it. On the other hand, now it's all about Napoleon himself. And because it's all about Napoleon himself, peace is impossible. Did you get that one also or not? I guess, all right, yeah, there, the video's not working. That's a shame. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it work sometime. The, uh, maybe we can put it in there later, yeah. Uh, no, there's this famous uh, things I want to show you uh, where Lord Nelson in the most famous movie of World War II is talking about Hitler, but he's putting Napoleon. He said, I guess you cannot make peace with a dictator. That really was the policy of England. They said, maybe we can make peace with France. You cannot make peace with Napoleon because he'll use it like Hitler every minute to, to prepare for the next war. So it got to the point that nobody trusted him. And England never, ever made peace with him. They fought him all the way through. And little by little, all the other countries, when they had a chance, they fought him. And even if he beat him, they wanted to fight him later on when they had a chance. And so that means if you're a friend, there's no, end of, there's no peace. Right? It's constantly going there. And if you're a mother, you're a father, you're this, that, and the other, you're sending kids off, they're not coming back. Right? And where's it going? Another army gets fighting in Spain, and another one in Portugal, and another one's fighting the Austrians, and even if we, we beat them, you know, when does it end? And, and it would never end. England would never, ever give up. This is what English are famous for. So, uh, this was a problem. France could not settle down. There are going to be more and more wars. Napoleon knew how to win most of the battles. He even knew how to balance the budget. He was very good at that, actually. When he left office, he had in his basement, listen to this, two years' worth of receipts. Get it? Let's say the federal government, for argument's sake, takes in, uh, you know, a trillion a year in, in receipts. He had two trillion in the basement in gold bullion. You see, the guy was not stupid. Uh, just in case, you know, rainy day fund, as they say. Uh, okay? In Maryland, we have some politicians like that also. Uh, but uh, he knew how to do that, but he can't stop the wars. You see, he can't stop the wars. So where's it going? It's, uh, it's going to be terrible. This meant the government did not, uh, as far as the Jews are concerned, it meant the government did not have time to pay attention to the Jews. Napoleon's got to worry about the Austrians, the British, the Russians, the Prussians, the this, that, and the other, and uh, not the Jews. So when did he do the Sanhedrin? The year he had off in 1808, 1807, 1808. That was the year everything was doing just right, you know. Afterwards, out in the concite, and for the Jews, that's a bracha, you understand? Uh, and that's how they looked at it. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, I want to be clear about this, the fundamental civil rights that are granted to the Jews, except for the unusual situation in Alsace, were retained by the French wherever they ruled. So, when Europe was under Napoleon, do we have the map? It's all, it's all part of the... It's coming, it's coming. Okay. When, when, Europe, when, when, when Napoleon actually annexed a lot of Europe, that, if you're Jewish, that means you have civil rights. You know what I'm saying? You, know, you have to live in a ghetto, you can get any job you want, you can go to college, you can, all, all that sort of thing. So, I'm not going to say he was a totally bad person, 
But on the other hand, it's, it's not simple. What about if you did not live under Napoleon? What, do you lived, what happened if you lived in, in one of the other countries of Europe? Then it gets very, very tricky. But again, since the hour is late and we're having trouble here anyway, so maybe I'll put this off till Monday night when we resume this. And then I wish you good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.